chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. So many wonderful, wonderful scripture passages as we come into the Advent season and fill us with expectation and hope as God's people have read these things and pondered them and shared them with others uh, in a way that encourages faith uh, and joy in Jesus Christ. So listen to the word of God now. In the days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream to it. Many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go, go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thanks, Mike. Well, I also want to say good morning to each of you and also a word of thanks to Chris Chytris and, uh, and all those who came here yesterday to decorate our sanctuary for, for the season. Um, what a joy it is to worship in this beautiful space. This past week, I was um, having a conversation with a, a pastor friend of mine, and we often talk about um, the high holy seasons and what it's kind of like for our nation at this part, whatever particular year it might be. And so I was, I was asking him, what do you think Christmas is going to be like, you know, this year? And he said, I don't, I don't know, but I, 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 Advent hasn't even started yet, and my spirit is feeling tired, and I'm not sure why. And I'm not sure if that's reflective of what's going on um, around the country and around the world. I said it reminds me of our theme for, uh, for Advent this year at Mount O, which is uh, called A Weary World. It comes from the first stanza uh, of a Christmas carol that we'll sing on Christmas Eve. Uh, called O Holy Night. You know this song. Remember the song was written in the 1800s and it was translated into English during the Civil War by um, a Unitarian minister out of Harvard Divinity School. And it goes like this. The first stanza goes like this. O Holy Night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining until he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. For yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. I was reflecting on this and as well as the small group study that Bree is leading for our community during this season. And I think that many are feeling weary um, this year. 
There was a study done um, and released about a month ago by the Utah Foundation, which um, measures the quality of life of, youth, of people who live in Utah. And it showed this year uh, um, quite a drop, um, dropped fra- down to 64 points out of 100 in the seven categories that it showed a decline here in Utah for a quality of life. And a large part of that is around affordable housing issues here and inflation in Utah as well as climate change. But it's not just in Utah. In another poll, national poll, 71% of Americans said they felt stressed out at least once or twice a month in the past year. 62% said they felt anxious at some point once or twice a month in the past year. And 53% said that they felt burned out at some point in the last year. So what are we weary of? Well, here are a few suggestions. We're weary of viruses, including but not limited to COVID. We're weary of conflict and polarization. We're weary of childish politics, which seems to be on the rise again. We're weary of bad news constantly on the television screen. We're weary of inflation, rising prices, uh, supply chain issues around the world. We're weary of climate change and unpredictable weather patterns and critical lakes drying up. We're weary of mass shootings violence, hatred, war. And that doesn't even count the personal pain that some of you have been going through in this past year as well. Now, I know that we're just coming off of the exuberant gratitude of Thanksgiving, and it should really be a cheery time for us. But the reality is, is if we're going to talk about hope, we have to talk about our current experience and current situation and the truth is there's a lot to be weary about. Christmas is four weeks away and Advent is the season that leads up to the Christmas celebration. It's the season of the church that looks back with Israel with their longing and their hope for Messiah to come and they were weary too, the people of God in those days and yet the prophets give them hope with a promise of God, of the coming Messiah to be fulfilled. And like Israel, we we find hope too because God sent his son on Christmas morning. We know that Christ is with us today and because he is with us by his spirit, he will also fulfill the promise that Christ will come again and finally complete the the, uh, redemption project that he began on Christmas morning. And this hope allows us to have joy in a season of longing and yearning and in the midst of a weary world. So here's the vision and here's where we're going for um, Advent. Uh, This is the vision of Isaiah of, of the future peaceable kingdom. In a world weary of violence, the peace of God is coming in Jesus Christ. In a world weary of evil, The righteousness of God is coming in Jesus Christ. In a world weary of despair, we have hope that the joy of God is coming. In a world of injustice, we have hope that the justice and fairness of God is coming in Jesus Christ. And in a world weary of darkness, we see the light of God coming to us in Jesus. These are passages that we'll see as an Advent unfolds. They're passages of hope set in context of great trouble and war. 
with enemies on all sides and an Assyrian invasion on the horizon. Isaiah offers this hopeful vision. This is what it's going to be. This is your experience now, but here's what it is going to be in the future. Let me show you this picture. And this picture instills in them a hope that gives them strength for living today. What we believe about the future determines how we live in the present. What we believe about the future determines how we live in the present. And this was a promise, not just, not just for the people of God, not just for Judah, but for all the peoples of the earth, all the nations of the earth. Isaiah writes this. He says, in days to come, in this future time, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream to it. It's an image that reverses what happened at the Tower of Babel with the scattering of all people. This is the reunification of all peoples being drawn together under one Lord and God. Um, the mountain of the Lord in, it was, is in Mount, is Mount Zion. And this is a hill in Jerusalem um, upon which King Solomon built the temple. It was for Jews a holy place in the midst of a holy city. When David moved the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, it became a holy city for the Jewish people, and Mount Zion became the mountain of the Lord. It was here in this holy city, the home of God, that the nations will come together and acknowledge Lord as God and seek to walk in God's ways. So no longer will there be war, that's Isaiah's promise. You are under the threat of war, but war will cease to be part of this new world. With God at the center, Isaiah writes, God will judge between the nations and will arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. What an image. Swords into plowshares, spears into pruning hooks. It's not that we'll just lay down our weapons for a moment, but these weapons will be obsolete in a world of shalom, and in such, world, in such a world, we will have no use for that, so we might as well actually transform them out of instruments of death and make them into instruments of life and food production. Um, I learned that the, uh, that the Scots will say that if you beat your swords into golf clubs, then you'll become a holy golfer. <laughs> I don't know. But whether it's golf clubs or pruning hooks, the point is that tools of war will become tools of peace. That's not to say there won't be disagreements, but God will be the mediator of the disputes. Like most of you, for almost a year now, I've been following with great dismay and sadness the events taking place in Ukraine. Of course, there are wars and there are attacks in many countries and places around the world and over 600 mass shootings in the United States alone uh, in this past year. Seeing Russian rockets fired on Ukraine, missiles, troops, and tanks, innocent women and children now, now without power at the beginning of a brutal and cold winter, it just continues to be so incredibly disturbing. Unjust war 
Unjust war is an expression of the dark side of the human condition that exists in everyone's heart. It's usually motivated by the desire for power or money or wealth, control, revenge, sometimes to force someone's worldview or religion or politics or way of life upon another. And there are times when engaging in war might be morally justified, when one engages in war to defend oneself or others, to prevent greater harm to others, or to liberate a people under an oppressive regime. War might be justified in certain times. In his speeches, President Putin sought to describe his war in this way, as preemptive, defensive, aimed at liberating. Have you ever heard of an aggressor um, who doesn't feel justified in their actions? Most of the world, including Russia, sees this attack and series of attacks as nothing short of an expression of evil. Few things better symbolize God's desired shalom than warfare and battles. Why? Because it's always the innocent, the children, the elderly, the vulnerable who suffer the most in wartime. And if that doesn't sound like evil, what does? All of this is why war is the opposite of God's design and why Isaiah promises a world and a in a a reality without war. Because in war, we take the differences between us as, as people, and instead of celebrating difference as God's gift between us, for us, we use them as an excuse to destroy the environment and kill each other. We even convince ourselves that these differences that we have between us are are actually, they point to deficiencies in ways that will justify murderous actions. And we find ways to develop economic schemes and programs that make it easier to deny people their basic rights. I'm reminded that the Bible is quite familiar with war. The Old Testament, um, so much of the Old Testament is written either um, in anticipation of war, in the aftermath of war, or in the middle of war. In the New Testament, Jesus predicts more wars, like the one that came in A.D. 66, which ended with the, uh, resulted in the destruction of the Jerusalem temple. The New Testament then ends with the book of Revelation and two final battles. The first battle, known as Armageddon, is symbolic of human evil. And the second battle, the last battle, is symbolic of God's final defeat of war and human evil and violence. The Bible is clear that God grieves the violence that humans inflict on one another And that was the point of, a big part of the point of the story of Noah and the ark. Genesis 6.13 says, And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence. No more violence. No more violence. War begins in the human heart. It doesn't begin in, in a tool, in an instrument. It begins in the human heart. And until we realize then with Paul that there is actually a war going on within every one of us, we'll never be able to be instruments of peace. On September 9th, 1997, you might remember the 90s, 
There was a giant crane that lowered this um, four-ton sculpture onto Judiciary Square in Washington, D.C. Currently, this image is taken at Mennonite University where this piece of art is living for about three years before it re will return back to D.C. It's titled Guns into Plowshares, and it's a 16-foot high steel plow blade, and it consists of 3,000 handguns welded together to form this distinctive shape of this farm implement. The artist, her name is Esther Augsburger, and she worked for two and a half years with her son and alongside the Metro Police Department. They worked together and they molded handguns that had been voluntarily surrendered by local residents. You might remember that the 1990s were high time for street gangs and the emergence of street gangs and gang violence in the streets. And most of the violence in the streets in our own nation was done by handguns. Perhaps now the, the symbol of the violence in the new millennium would be an AR-15 or an assault rifle and maybe a new art piece can be um, uh, built. The point, of course, is that violence just takes on different forms. It doesn't go away until the mountain of the Lord's house is established. Another piece of art, um, not without any irony, is this one. This, is, uh, this was uh, in, installed in 1959 at the United Nations headquarters in New York City, where it remains today. And it is a very literal depiction of Isaiah's vision. It's titled Swords into Plowshares. And it's a depiction of a uh, working class Russian with a working class tool beating a sword into plow, a plowshare. And it was um, donated and given to the United Nations by the USSR in 1959. You can almost smell the irony. Isaiah wants us to see that unlearning the arts of war is one of the first effects of people's being drawn to God's holy mountain. When we learn God's ways, we unlearn the ways of war. One follows the other like thunder and lightning. When we walk in God's light, we leave behind the dark regions where lives and civilizations are wiped out through killing and mayhem. I wonder if Isaiah, what would it be like if Isaiah gave us this vision today in our modern world? Maybe he would say the day will come when military tanks will be transformed into John Deere tractors to plow fields. Guns will be constructed into fences on which grapevines can grow. We'll turn missile silos into wheat silos. And the Pentagon will become the world's largest food court. What a, what a great big food court that would be. Shalom, you see, shalom doesn't simply mean the absence of war or the absence of conflict or avoiding disagreement or fighting. It is that, but it's so much more. Shalom means taking an initiative to be peacemakers. More than finding ways not to argue, it means proactively seeing God's image in every single human being that exists. And so the call is then, as, as our executive presbyter put on her Facebook, to go be Jesus to Jesus in the world. We must see the image of God in each one of us. No matter how outwardly different that other person may be, violence begins in the human heart and so does peace. 
Even more, shalom means not just passively accepting the fact that we're, as human beings, all connected to one another. It also means doing something to take that relationship to make it better. And that's why we pray, and that's why we work for peace in the world. And that's why we want to turn swords into pruning hooks and tanks into tractors. Here's an image of what that could look like, by the way. Um, this was actually about 20 years ago in Ukraine. A, tra a, a tank that was transformed into a plow. And uh, so that's what that could look like anyway. As followers of the Prince of Peace, we want to be producers of life, not producers of death. We want there to be enough groceries to go around so that no one will be hungry again. That's why we participate in these ministries that we do throughout this season. Now, Jesus, of course, was born in Bethlehem, the house of bread. Why? Because Jesus is a symbol of, of life. The earth itself is meant to produce life for all the living creatures. And you know what war does? It, it literally destroys the conditions. It, it, uh, it decimates any conditions that would produce life. So literally the, in the soil, you cannot produce life in the aftermath of war. You might remember that in World War II, almost as many Russians died of starvation in cities cut off by the Nazis as in, in combat combat in World War um, in, anyway. There is a, there's a remarkable film that I watched this past week um, that I would highly recommend to you to watch. I think it's a beautiful film for Advent, and it's called Joyeux Noël. It's a French film, and it takes place during uh, World War I, and a particular event, a true story that happened in World War I, known as the Christmas Truce of 1914. You might remember that in World War I, trench warfare was the name of the game. So they, people fought in trenches, and that meant that they were often in very close proximity to their enemies. Um, and mostly, trench warfare led to some of the most brutal and sickening slaughters in battle anyone has ever seen. The British lost so many troops in World War I, mostly through trench warfare that Winston Churchill said afterwards that theirs was a victory scarcely indistinguishable from defeat. But on one particular battlefield on Christmas Eve in 1914 and then into Christmas morning, the proximity of the trenches led to something different than we'd expect. In the German trenches, there was a skilled tenor who wanted to sing a hearty rendition of Stille Nacht, uh, Silent Night, to his troops to lift their spirits on Christmas Eve. And as he begins to sing this song and, and the, the German troops begin to sing, the Scottish troops in the Scottish trench could hear it and they were sort of taken aback by this. And the Scottish priest, who was, who was the uh, stretcher bearer in, in the trench there, uh, also had a bagpipe. And he started to play the bagpipe. And they started to sing. And, uh, and the singing continues until finally the tenor and the bagpipe player emerge out of uh, their trenches. 
and they face each other and they agree on a truce. And the bagpipe player starts playing Adeste Fidelis, O Come All Ye Faithful. The tenor takes up the song in French. And now the bewildered soldiers in also the French trench begin to sing along. The entire clip in the film is um, about 20 minutes long. I would love to show it to you, but I can't for that reason. I'm going to show you um, a different rendition of this event that took place as Christmas morning emerged. It's about three minutes long. It is an image, a vision, a microcosm of Isaiah's vision of what this world will come to when Christ returns, at least for a moment. Take a look.
All right, that's. There is coming a day, according to Isaiah, when, when our swords will be turned into plowshares and where enemies will be made into friends and brothers. Advent is about our hope for this peace that is to come. It's yet to be fulfilled on a global scale, a national level, even in our families and even in our own hearts. Yet in his arrival, in his first arrival, Jesus made his life of peace available to all of us today, now. When we say yes to Jesus, we are, as we are called to do every morning, we unlearn the ways of war and we take on the role of peacemakers. We contribute to the building of God's peaceable kingdom on earth and in doing so we bear witness to our hope that God will bring this work to completion. And so our, our hope is grounded in what God did that first Christmas long ago, but also in what we believe about the risen Christ's continuing presence with us and his glorious return in the days to come. That's what Advent is all about, about remembering, about remembering Jesus' past, about affirming Jesus' present, and about anticipating Jesus' future, coming to us with hope in hand, hope for the world, hope for you, and for me. As we close our service today, in a time of, of incredible violence and war, let's stand and join our voices and sing for a better day to come.